I hope that you don't struggle with your identity, but I know in this day, there's a lot of conversations about who am I, what am I here for, and, and it's a legitimate question to ask, but the great thing about being in Christ is being in Christ gives us his identity, his security, his eternity. It's a beautiful, un, it removes a lot of the ambiguity that this world uh, brings to us. I am who the great I am says that I am. I love that song. Uh, another question that we ask ourselves sometimes is, why am I here? That's a legitimate question. Asking good questions, I've, I've said this before, that the deep people of life are not the ones who have deep statements, but the ones who ask deep questions. Those who can ask the right questions. Jesus asked 130 different questions in the Gospels alone. Think about that. He was the deepest person on earth, and yet he's asking questions. All right? So that's the level of what a good question can do. Why am I here? There was a great book written a number of years ago. We passed it out like candy around here. What on earth am I here for? The Purpose Driven Life. It sold more copies than any other book except for the Bible because this is a question that we ask. Who am I? Why am I here? We ask it on the macro level. Why, have I, why do I exist? What's the purpose of here? But sometimes we ask it on the micro level. Why am I in this job? That's the micro level. We sometimes look at our job. We, we make widgets every day or we sell widgets to Walmart and we've got to find shelf space and we've got to convince them for more. And, and it's constantly about that. It's about spreadsheets and numbers. And sometimes we wake up in the morning and we go, why am I here? Is it really that important that I sell more widgets this year than last year? And that's really what it's about. And sometimes we have to ask that question. Sometimes it means a career change. Sometimes it means a life change for us. Sometimes we ask that question about our relationship. Why am I in this relationship? It's a very legitimate question. Especially you want to ask that before you get married, Okay. I try to, whenever I'm counseling somebody or dealing with somebody in a premarital situation, is try to ask those questions. In fact, I will literally require that they write out reasons why this is the person that they're supposed to marry. What's sad, though, is some people don't take it seriously enough, and they get into the marriage, and then they ask the question, why am I married to you? If I had known that, what I know now, I wouldn't have done what I've done. You know, that, that kind of thing. Well, it's a little late. The ship has sailed at that point. We've got to figure it out, okay? But why am I in this relationship? And Lori and I have entered into a new season of our life. We're empty nesters. For two weeks we mourned, and then we rejoice. <laughs> Joy comes in the morning. We do things that we don't have to worry about anymore, and that's personal, okay? We, uh, we, we, just, we just enjoy the new phrase that we have is, I love us. And so that's our phrase, I love us, back and forth to each other, because we like where we're at. We like where we're at in our life and our marriage and, and, and things like that. I hope that you can say that about your marriage. I, I know that I've talked to a number of people who they become really good parents. They develop skills on parenting. They listen to people on parenting, and they really focus on becoming good parents. Then all of a sudden, they become empty nesters, and they're looking across the table at each other, and they're going... Oh, for the rest of my life, oh, really? You know, and they, they focused on becoming good parents, but they didn't focus on becoming good partners. And you're going to be a partner for hopefully 50 plus years. 
you are going to be a parent, hopefully, for 20 years, and then they're going to move on, all right? We move into that different kind of, kind of role. But these are, this is just some of the things that we wrestle with in life that if we're not careful, we will, we will miss up, we'll mess up something that's very, very valuable. And here's a statement I want you to hang on to today. If we don't nurture what we value, we will lose what's important. Take it for granted. Take advantage of it. Neglect it. It gets a little dusty and a little rusty. If we don't value, if we don't nurture what we value, we will lose what's important to us. It happens in our faith. If we don't nurture our faith, then our faith will become weak and, and bulimic and sick and, and literally just dry up inside of us. So if we don't nurture our faith, we will, we will lose our faith in time. Now, I don't say you lose your salvation. We're going to get into all that theology today. But I'm saying that we can very easily have what's called vision drift. You've heard of that in the business world when a company starts for this, the entrepreneur, the founder says, we're going in this direction. We're going to take that hill. And, we, and in the beginning, everyone's excited. We're all taking the hill together. And then over time and energy fades and vision leaks and all of a sudden you begin to drift off over here. And what was very important in the beginning becomes less important today. And that's not something you want to see in your business, not something you want to see in your faith. And when this happens, it doesn't happen because we wake up one day and we turn on a switch and we go, you know what? I'm not going to do that anymore. You, you know what? That's not important anymore. It's a subtle, almost unconscious drift that happens inside of us. It happens in our faith. And I want to really zero in on that one today. Because when you look at the life of Christ and we say that Jesus lived sent and, and he modeled it in his life. In fact, he even said that in, in the very beginning in Luke chapter 19, verse 20. He says, I came to seek and to save those who were lost. That was why he came. He could put it in one vision statement right there. This is why I'm here. He knew why he was here. And now he would give up sleep. He would give up food. He would give up privacy to live out that vision. And the beautiful thing is he didn't just do it for the first part of his life or maybe in the middle of his ministry. He did it all the way through. So that when John was writing the very last book of the Bible, he saw this vision uh, of Jesus in Revelation chapter one, verse five. He says this, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, witness. He lived sent all of his life. That word faithful is reliable consistently. Reliable, trustworthy. He was that kind of witness. He never let the fire go out of his faith and what he was about. And I say all that just to kind of give us that warning again. If we don't nurture what we value, we will lose it. What's important. And, and, and let me give you an example of this, because what happens whenever we become a follower of Christ, there's a beautiful thing that happens in us. We come alive. We, 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 we now can hear God. We, we hear God speak to us and we pray and we sing and the songs mean so much more and life is so much grander. It's like everything's in full color now and dimensions are there and understanding of eternity is there and understanding of the present is there. It didn't fix everything, but man, it just gives you a peace to be able to carry on through. And that's a beautiful time. But then what happens, again, unintentionally, subtly, our heart 
grows cold. Now, when we were hot, we were, we were ready to go out and share our faith with anybody. We didn't know we were supposed to be scared. We didn't know we weren't supposed to tell people. We learned that, again, a part of the vision drift that happens. And it happens, again, subtly, but over time. A study that was done that really disturbs me deeply is that when most people come to faith in Christ, they have about 12 friends who are far from Christ. The first day that they come to Christ, they can literally count up about 12 different friends. But time happens, years go by, they get in their little holy huddles, they move away from lostness because they can't handle the dams and the hells anymore. They don't want to sit in the smoking section because they don't want to smell like smoke because their Christian friends may think they smoke. And they get a little bit nervous when they get around some of that battling. And all of a sudden, what was 12 unbelieving friends that was their mission field that they were called to becomes at the end of about 10 years, about four. About four. Maybe five or six if they're in the middle. And really, if you, if you think about this, just where, where, do we, where do we sit at Grace Point Church? And we did a survey back on Mother's Day. Maybe you were here and you took that survey with us. But we literally asked that question. How many people do you know that you are in regular contact with? There it is. That you interact with on a continual basis who are far from God. 2,204 people of the 400 people that took that survey on Mother's Day said that's how many people I know far from God. Now, that's an overwhelming number. That's a lot of people that we meet with on a continual basis. But you average 400 into that 204, that's 5.5 on average that we know of people far from God. We're just like the average Joe. We're like everyone else. I want us to go back to a story that we started talking about on September, I guess it was the 19th. In John chapter 4, I want to pick back up with this particular lady, woman in the, at the well, the Samaritan woman. We don't know her name. We know Nicodemus from chapter three. He was the, he was the altogether guy. He had it all packaged together. He had his life together. But then the disciples were traveling from Jerusalem in the south to Galilee in the north. And Jesus had this epiphany that he must needs go through Samaria. Nobody goes through Samaria. I can't go back and retell that story. You'll have to go back and re-listen to that message. But I want to kind of pick up with that because he goes to Samaria. He goes to the, this little town of Sychar where the, the well of Jacob that dates way back in the Old Testament. And he goes to this well and he sits down there. He's tired. He's, it's only halfway through the day, but they're going to take a lunch break. The disciples go into town. They're going to go get lunch food, okay, or stuff to make falafels or something like that. And he's, Jesus is going to sit down there and rest in the shade. And he interacts with this lady, this Samaritan woman who's coming and drawing water. And it's this beautiful interaction. Again, I unpack that and I don't have time to go into that. But now this week, we're going to pick up where that story ends. Because this woman is introduced to Jesus, the Messiah. And that will forever change her life. And what we're going to do is we're going to pick up and we're going to see in this narrative, we're going to start with the disciples. The disciples come back from town. And then we're going to go back to the woman at the well. And then we're going to go back to the disciples. And then we're going to go back to the woman at the well. And then we're going to go over to the, the village. So you just need to follow along as we go, but I think you will pick it up as we read through it right now. So let's read John chapter 4, verse 27. Follow along as I read. Then, just then, his disciples came back. They marveled. This word marveled is the same word that you would get when Jesus would do a miracle. 
They were astounded. They were blown away. What were they marveling at that he was talking with a woman? You got to realize that rabbis had a proverb in that day that you would not talk to a woman. They were second class. But by all means, you wouldn't talk to a woman that was a Samaritan. And you wouldn't talk to a Samaritan woman who had so bad of a reputation. And so she had everything going against her. And they're marveling that Jesus is talking to this woman. But no one said what they were thinking. I love people like that. They're thinking it. They're drawing their own conclusions. They're asking these questions. What do you seek? I'll come back to that in a moment. They're asking that about this woman. Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out to the town and they were coming to him. So imagine this, that now she goes to town, the disciples are processing this in their head and out loud with Jesus, and now all of a sudden the town starts coming to Jesus. Meanwhile, the disciples are urging him, Rabbi, eat, like some grandmother. You're going to waste away. You've got to eat, Jesus. Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food that you know not of, that you know not about. So the disciples said to one another, oh, has anyone brought him something to eat. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Underscore the word sent me. Circle it. We'll come back to that in a moment. And to accomplish his work. Do not say that there are four months and then comes the harvest. Now he goes into this little metaphor or parable here. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. Now I think what he did is he started pointing to the city of Sychar. Well, the disciples had just come, and now the city is coming to meet Jesus here, imagining that. He says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. Is he referring to the woman? I don't know. So that the sower and the reaper are rejoicing together, for here the saying hold, uh, holds me. One sows and another reaps. Now look at this next phrase and underscore it. I sent you. Jesus was sent and he turns around and he sent you. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have not entered their, into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him and the woman's, uh, of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay, to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Now, we don't know if he was going to stay two days. But most likely, he was going to Galilee. He was going to oh, stop off for a lunch break at the, at the rest area. And then they were going to march right on, get out of Samaria before sundown. That was the goal, okay? But no, they ended up staying there two days And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said to me. That started the conversation. That started their journey. It's not what you said. Now, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. There is so much in this. 
But I want us to be keenly aware as we're watching the woman and we're watching the disciples that there's literally two different responses that are going on in the same narrative happening under the same Palestinian sun happening at the same moment. There's two different reactions and they're living in tension with each other. And we are going to find ourselves in one of those two variations here. When you look at it, you find the disciples and they're experiencing what I call vision drift. They're they're over here and they're like, they've already forgotten John chapter 1 when many of them came to faith in Christ. And now they're in John chapter 4 and they're asking, what in the world is he talking to this woman? Not remembering that everything about Jesus was to live sin. And then you've got the woman at the well who has just had this born again experience with Jesus. And she can't get the words out fast enough. What happens, and I don't know what happened between John chapter 1 and John chapter 4, but there was something that happened that the disciples went from being passionate because we know what Philip and Andrew did. They went and told their brothers immediately, and they immediately became followers, and so they were hot-hearted then. But then there was this slow vision drift to coldness, to no longer passionate. And here's the title of the message dangerous Christians because we are going to be either dangerous Christians or courageous Christians. And there will be a natural proclivity, a gravitational pull, if you will, a natural cooling, cold, uh, uh, softening or hardening of the heart, maybe better yet, that happens that we will end up over here in this vision drift where we no longer understand and see why we're called, why we've been saved, why God did his work in us. We forget that and we move away from the passionate pursuit of giving life, the life that we've received. What does it look like? I want to point out four dangers, four potential dangers of long-term Christians, okay? And again, this is happens subtly. It's something that happens just naturally over time if we're not careful. One is we develop short-sighted vision, okay? We all understand that. I'm understanding it more and more. If you'll notice, when I'm reading the Bible even up here, I have to get the light right, and I turn it like this, and I have to get it just right because I got a contact in this eye, and I got to get it just right or I will not see it. That happens when you get old like dirt, like me. Some of you young pups don't know what I'm talking about yet. You will figure that out. Over time, though, the eyes begin to deteriorate. And what happens with the disciples over time, from chapter 1 to chapter 4, there's this deterioration where they developed a short-sighted vision. They begin to only see themselves. They, they, They failed to see beyond themselves. But all along, Jesus was very passionate about going beyond, not only to the Samaritan woman, he does it to the Canaanite woman. Canaanite woman, jot this verse down, Matthew chapter 15, verse 28. When he goes to a Canaanite woman, if you remember that story, it's a very short story, not near as long as the one in, uh, in, uh, in John chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman. But the Canaanites have been a thorn in the flesh, in the side of the Israelites since they moved to the promised land. And yet Jesus will walk across an aisle, cross taboos, cross customs, cross race, racial lines, cross socioeconomic barriers to make sure that the gospel is known. We've got to realize that racism, social taboos, biases 
are not what the gospel is about. We're going to have on the stage in a few moments about 20 different people that are going to go to different cultures and different worlds. They're leaving out in the next, some are leaving out tomorrow, some are leaving out next week. And they're going to go to to Athens to work with refugees that we helped raise $60,000 over Christmas offering to help those in this transition of refugee living. We have other people that are going to go serve among East Asians who are very affluent and and yet the suicide rate is astronomical. going to cross barriers and lands and oceans and government policies and procedures to learn and be among a people so that they can share Jesus with them. Sometimes we don't have to cross oceans and lands. Sometimes we have to cross the street. I want you to notice that the, the racial biases of these disciples, they walk back on the scene. What it was the first question they ask in verse 27? What do you seek? They ask this about that woman. Uh, Remember the story? It was Jesus who struck up the conversation. It was not the woman. The woman wanted to go on about her business and left that Jewish man alone over there. But Jesus struck up the conversation. He said, hey, can you give me something to drink? And what did they do? They walk on the scene and their biases, their prejudice said that this woman is wanting something from our man. That's how they are bent. And biases and prejudices sometimes keep us from being about the work of God. It happened with the disciples at another time whenever they were pushing the children away because the parents were bringing their children to Jesus to be touched by Jesus and they're pushing them away and Jesus turns around and doesn't rebuke the parents, doesn't rebuke the children, but rebukes his disciples. In Luke chapter 18, verse 15, it says, now they're bringing their infants to him that he might touch them and when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for such is the kingdom, belongs the kingdom of God. See, when Jesus looks at us, he doesn't see who they are. He sees who they can become. It doesn't matter to them that they're children or that they're of a different race, of a different culture. He sees them as potential children of God. When's the last time you intentionally went out of your way to invite into your home a person of a Muslim faith? I'm going to challenge you that between now and Thanksgiving that you will find somebody of a different faith. Maybe it's a Muslim. And you'll invite them into your life, into your world, and maybe even have them over for Thanksgiving. When was the last time that you had a relationship with a Hindu-Indian of which there are hundreds and hundreds of moving into our area. Joe Monk, who was in our first gathering, she said, when I first came to Grace Point, she said, I had zero unbelieving friends. She says, now I have so many. What is she doing? She is teaching swimming lessons to Asian, Hindu, Indian women. She's just taking what she does, where she lives, works, learns, and plays, and she's just passing it on, building relationships so she can have gospel conversations. When's the time that you sought out somebody of a different race and crossed that social barrier just so you could have a relationship with somebody different than you? If you're straight, when's the last time you had a relationship, a friendship with somebody who wasn't? When have you crossed a socioeconomic line? I like what one church put on their marquee one time. Welcome, pimps, perverts, and prostitutes. 
Now, you talk about turning the eye in the community. I would hope that would be of Grace Point. I would hope that would be of me. If I become short-sighted, I become a dangerous Christian. If I, be, if, if I get over being saved, I am a dangerous Christian. John Stott said it like this, the greatest hindrance to the advances of the gospel and worldwide. Now think, just right there. John Stott was a great theologian. He was a great missiologist. He said the greatest hindrance in the advance of the gospel and the worldwide is the failure of God's people to live like God's people. Let that sink in. It's not the persecuted church. It's not because there's Syrians that are being killed for their faith. It's not because, of, because people can't afford to go internationally. It's not, no, it's because Christians not living out the Christian faith. Just again, you can go globally, you can go locally. Just think about your neighbors. Think about your neighbors. On average, again, three out of four Americans don't even know the people that live next door to them. This was convicting to me a few years ago whenever I read that statistic because I was one of those. In the four neighbors around my house, I could name one of them. Knew their wife, knew the kids, knew everything about them, knew their faith. But the rest of my neighbors, I didn't know them. One in seven don't even know their neighbor's name. I want you to do this. I want you to draw your house. Take your piece of paper in front of you right now. I want you to draw your house in the center and I want you to put four squares around the outside. You're the circle, they're the squares. And I want you to write the names of your neighbors. Just the first names, just the names. How well do you know your neighbor? You're to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Do you know your neighbors? When Philip became a believer, he went to his brother. When Andrew became a believer, he went to his brother. He went to his friend. Excuse me, Philip went to his friend. Andrew went to his brother. They were, they were sharing the gospel with those around them. If you look at verse 28, what does this woman at the well do? So the woman left her water jar and went away to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. He got into my junk. He talked about my shame. He talked about my regrets and he loved me. He didn't shame me. He loved me. He embraced me. He didn't say it was right. He didn't say, wink at it and say it was okay, but he embraced me. He knew me and he loved me anyway. See, what did I say earlier? He, it's not that he just knows us. He knows what he can become, what God wants to make of us. And then you skip right down to verse 39. It says, many Samaritans. So it went from the one to the many. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Why? Why? Why they believe? Because of the woman's testimony that he told me all that I ever did. Because of the woman's testimony. Started the conversation. I love it that this past week I've had three, four maybe, either text, emails, or personal conversations with some of you, some of you who shared the gospel for the very first time. And you started with your story. You had somebody come into your life. You've been praying for somebody. And they came in and they vomited out their, their life to you. And you say, hey, can I share with you the difference that Christ has made in my life? You ask a question. They can say no. 
They can say yes. They say yes, you carry on. Just just being available, just being in their life, sharing stories, sharing your God story. It's exactly what this woman did. Did she have it all figured out? Did she have all the Bible verses? No, she just left a cult, if you remember. She didn't have it all figured out. She didn't have her theology all nice packaged. She hadn't been to Bible college. She didn't have all the verses in the, in the Torah figured out. But what she did have figured out was that Jesus knew her and she knew Jesus, and that changed everything. Don't ever get over being saved or you'll be a dangerous Christian. Number three is the primary becomes the secondary. The primary, what is number one should stay number one. You've always heard it said, keep the main thing, the main thing. What is the main thing? We talked about the five windows that we pass through in a gospel conversation. It starts with a conversation, just having an everyday conversation. Everyday conversations can become Jesus conversations if I work at them and I work to the transition. Now, the transition is the hardest part. It can be a question. You can start with a question. You can kind of say, hey, man, can I tell you about my story? Hey, hey, have you ever thought about this? You can just, you can just kind of turn any conversation. It's just a matter of you just naturally filling it out in that situation. There's no one set way to do it. Then you go into presenting what Jesus Christ did. He came, he lived, he died so that we can have life with him. You really personalize that. and You can interweave your story into it. You can draw three circles like we did last week. You can do all that. Then always, 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 always give an invitation. What's an invitation? Hey, would you, would you like to give your life to Christ? Hey, have you ever, have you ever did anything like this? Have you ever, have you ever entered into a relationship with Jesus? Don't ask them if they joined a church. Don't ask them if they've been baptized. That's all religious functions. Ask them if they've ever entered into a relationship with Jesus. This is my, one of my favorite questions. Is there any reason why now you would not be willing to give your life to Jesus? I like that because it forces them to a point of decision. Is there any reason why now? They have to articulate, this is why I would not do it. If they, don't, if they can't come up with that reason, say, hey, would you like to? Give them an invitation. When they say yes, if they say yes, you may have to present the gospel five, six, seven, eight times before that happens. But here's what happens is they become a gospel witnesser. Rapid response. They become gospel witnesses. Why? Because they have 12 friends if they're an average Joe. And they can now go out and they can share, which is exactly what this woman did. Why did she go to the well? It's not, this is not a riddle. Why did she go to the well? To get water. What does she do when she gets at the well? She meets Jesus. Jesus encounters her. And what does she do? I love this verse. If it had left it out, I'd have been so sad. Verse 28. She left her water jar and went away into the town. All of a sudden, what was priority becomes secondary. And what was not even on her radar becomes primary. I got to get everyone else that I know in my community to know about the Jesus that I know. And this is not a one in one time thing. This happens throughout scripture. Look at these, look at this list. Take a picture of it. Do your own Bible study this week on each one of these. Andrew goes to Peter immediately. Philip goes to Nathaniel. A Samaritan woman goes to uh, her own village. We're reading that story right now. Matthew goes to all of his friends. The demon possessed goes to the Dicopolis. Uh, Cornelius goes to his family and friends. Uh, the Philippian jailer goes to his family. Lydia leads her entire family to faith in Christ. Immediately. 
They become gospel witnesses of the gospel that has penetrated their heart. And so see, the primary stays the primary. This is why I live. It's what Jesus had to do. Enter back into the gospel story, with, into the narrative story with the disciples. Verse 37 or 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat. He has physical needs. But he said to them, I have food that you do not know about. They start looking around. Who brought him food? I don't see his food. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of my father who sent me and to finish his work. My sustenance in life, my meaning in life, my purpose in life, my significance in life is not eating another falafel. It is about getting the gospel out to the friends and family, getting them out to my, the people I meet that I come in contact with. That becomes the number one thing in my life. The primary is the primary. And that is making sure everybody has a chance to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news. Amy Carmichael, a missionary to India a number of years. Incredible person. You ought to read her biography if you can. Challenges us to get out of our Bible studies, get out of our retreats, our men's and women's and youth and camps and all that we do. And, and, and those are all great and good and they need to equip us to do what we need to be doing. But Amy Carmichael said it well. She said, we have all eternity to celebrate our victories, get in our holy huddles, love on each other and take care of each other. But we have only today to win them. We have only today. Keep the primary, the primary. Number four. You may be a dangerous Christian if you underestimate the power of one. The power of one. Don't underestimate what one can do. What one day like yesterday can do with 450 people on our campus. When Tanner Cox shares the gospel with somebody as he did yesterday, it's just Tanner with another foster child, but the power of one. Or the family last night in our church who received for the very, uh, uh, a new child into their home and the DHS worker gets out of the car wearing one of our t-shirts and drops off a child to their home last night. The power of one family saying, we're going to make a difference in one. We'll make a difference in one. Don't underestimate the power of one. Because when you put one with God, one plus God equals a majority any and every day of the week. You take an adulterous woman who had a reputation and every reason not to be sharing her faith and you put Jesus in her life and look what the power of one does. She leaves her jar, she went to her hometown and she starts telling people, come and see the man who told me everything that I had did. Can it be the Christ? She generates a question and puts it into their soul makes them start thinking, is this the Christ? Is this the Christ? And then verse 40, many Samaritans from that town believed. It goes from the one 
to the many, from the one insignificant down and out to the many, the entire village of Sychar hears the gospel and learns to know Jesus. And then they say, Jesus, don't leave town today. I know you're just here for a short break. Stay for the next two days. And he stays for the next two days. And many of them become followers of Jesus, not just because of her words, but because they met Jesus themselves. The power of one. When we as one individual realize the circle in which we live, the neighbors in which we live, the cubicle in which we work, the the, the teams on which we play, the classes in which we learn is the world in which God has put us in. And we share the gospel and we live for Jesus right there. It makes a difference. Let me tell you one story and I'm finished. It's a story of a name, of a guy by the name of Ed Kimball. Ed, this is in April of uh, 18, uh, 1855, I think it was, and uh, he is in Chicago, and he's a, 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 a Sunday school teacher. That's all he is. Um, just a faithful Sunday school teacher who had one of his students, one of his young men, Dwight was his name, that was burdening him. And so he got in his horse-drawn carriage and he got one night and he rode down to inner city Chicago and he meets up with Dwight and he shares the gospel with Dwight. And Dwight on that night becomes a follower of Jesus. Dwight was a shoe repairman, uneducated, but God set a fire inside of Dwight. He goes by D.L. Moody, if you've ever heard of him. D.L. Moody becomes one of the greatest evangelists that America, the world, has known outside of Billy Graham. Give me that one because he had television and radio and all that kind of stuff. But literally, historians will tell you that Dwight L. Moody shared the gospel with more people, saw more people come to faith in Christ than anybody else in modern history. And here he was, an uneducated shoe repairman from Chicago. He, across both continents of, uh, of Europe and America, he's preaching the gospel. And setting in one of his messages, under one of his teachings, was a, was a doctor, a physician by the name of J. Wilbert Chapman. J. Wilbert Chapman hears the gospel. He becomes a follower of Jesus. And on that night, he begins to feel God's calling him to continue his, his, his physical ministry to helping the sick and the, and the hurt. But also he knew that they needed the good news of Jesus. And so in that calling, he marries them together and he founds what's called the Pacific Garden Mission in the inner city. All it was about was helping those who are desperate, those who are broken, those who are marginalized, the nobodies, like the Samaritan woman, the down and outs, like the Samaritan woman. One night, some drunk comes in. This drunk used to be a famous baseball player, but literally wrecks his life in alcoholism becomes broken and poor and bankrupt and, and living in a shelter. But he hears the gospel from Dr. Chapman. And this former baseball player named Billy Sunday becomes a believer. Now, he was as rough around the edges as you can get. He could cuss a mean streak. And when he started preaching the gospel, he just kept cussing. 
And one time he was cussing and one lady said, the devil needs it. Keep on. Just right in the middle of his message. He would stand on top of the pulpit and I am a church history buff, so I like reading all this kind of stuff. So I'm giving you probably more details than you want. But he would break chairs on the stage. He was a dramatic kind of guy. Just kind of lets it all out there. Well, one time he was preaching one of his tent crusades. And there was a guy sitting in the congregation named Mordecai Ham. Not exactly the most common name, but Mordecai Mordecai hears the message of the gospel and he becomes a follower of Jesus. The power of one. Thank thank God for Ed Kimball. But not only does Mordecai Ham become a a follower of Christ and the preacher of the gospel, 30,000 people, historians believe, came to faith in Christ through Mordecai's ministry on the earth. 30,000. Thank God for the one Sunday school teacher. Thank God for Ed Kimball. One, mainly across the South, Georgia, Mississippi is where most of his teaching took place. One time he carved off, went up into North Carolina and was preaching a crusade there. And there was a 16-year-old named Billy Frank who came into the congregation that night and heard Mordecai Ham preach the gospel. And that Billy Frank, you'd know him as Billy Graham heard the gospel and said yes to Jesus. And you know the rest of the story because who hasn't heard Billy Graham preach the gospel upon millions and thousands and millions and thousands of people come to faith in Christ. The power of one. Thank God for a faithful Sunday school teacher named Ed Kimball who starts a movement of God. Thank God for the down and outs Samaritan women who will go back to her village and share the gospel. When you think about this message today, the message the past couple of weeks, you got two responses. You got two narratives. You got one time when Jesus literally goes and finds the woman. He had to go through Samaria. And for some of you in this room today, you know people right now, they're on your mind. You need to get uncomfortable and you need to go and you need to just tell your testimony, your God story to them. And maybe draw three circles and present the gospel to them. I'm going to pray for you this week that you'll be have that opportunity. But then there's that situation, if you remember, John chapter 3, when Nicodemus came to Jesus. Some of y'all are sitting here today and you are feeling a draw, a pull. I need to go to Jesus. I'm going to encourage you during our time of response. I want you to listen to the words of the song that we're going to sing because these are the words that Jesus told Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will have everlasting life life of substance and significance. It's what Jesus offers every single person in this room today. Will you bow your heads with me? We're going to have around this room pastors and deacons, just people that you can go and pray with. They're going to be standing in the, on the front, along the front. They're going to be, they're going to be in the back on the landing area. There's just going to be people that are standing there. And if you want to go to any of them and pray with them, they're there. But I want to pray right now. Father God, in this moment, 
We listen to your voice. And whether, Lord, we need to zero in on coming to you and establishing a relationship with you, then, Lord, so be it. Or, Lord, we need to be the one who goes to one other person and shares our story, your story, with them. Lord, give us the courage and the strength to not be dangerous Christians, but to be courageous Christians. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.